My name is Bethany Aini, and I will be reading our scripture passage today from John 8, verses 12 through 30, and you can follow along on page 840 in your pew Bible. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of God. So last weekend, I traveled down to Yorktown, Virginia, to officiate my sister's, my younger sister's wedding. Um, it was a special weekend for family, an extended family. Um, and that, just so you know, that is the technical wording. Pastors go officiate. <laughs> I've been teased with that by a couple people in this row a few times, and many others, that I didn't go to Virginia to marry my sister. I, I, I officiated her wedding. <laughs> um, does, does anybody object to this? Yeah, everyone object. Speak up now, you know. Uh, but it was a special weekend. Um, and I was going to make the joke that when I came back, uh, I leave for one week and you, you just stop preaching the Bible. <laughs> if you were here last week, it was this passage, and there was all these questions. Does this belong in the Gospel of John or not? And uh, I decided I wasn't going to make that joke. I listened to the live stream as I was driving back, and thought, that's Bible preaching. It was good. As we turn our attention to this week's passage, as Jeff said, um, we're going to pray. Pray that God would be our teacher. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the light of the world. 
We pray that you would shine brightly. The words that you spoke long ago, you would continue to speak. And we would respond in faith, in trust, in belief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This chapter, John chapter 8, ends roughly where it begins, with stones. First, a woman is caught in sin, and the religious leaders want to stone her, or more to the point, they want Jesus to stone her. So they can catch him in a trap. Either Jesus is faithful to God's law, or he's full of grace. Can't be either, can't be both, it's a trap. So they make her stoning a, a pawn in this assassination game they're playing with Jesus, yet no one throws a stone. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take the conversation that follows the rest of John 8, this, this one heated conversation with Jesus and the religious leaders, and we're going to break this conversation down into four manageable parts. Here's how the conversation ends. Quote, So they picked up stones to throw at him. John eight fifty nine. Yet no one throws a stone that time either. This is a repeated theme. The theme of wanting to kill Jesus, but not being able to do so until his time or his hour, because his time and his hour haven't come yet, that's a repeated theme, comes up often. They want to arrest, they want to kill, but they can't, they don't. According to chapter 7, we saw two answers why. First, we infer from the way it's described, the way it's discussed, that divine intervention keeps Jesus safe. The hand of God works in such a way that nothing will thwart his plan. Nothing can stop Jesus from doing what he's going to do until he's done what he was going to do. That's divine intervention. There's a second reason given in chapter 7 why he's not arrested. It's not different than the first Really, the second reason is one particular outworking of the first. How does the hand of God intervene to stop Jesus from being arrested? The religious leaders sent officers to arrest Jesus, yet the officers come back empty-handed. Why? <laughs> the religious leaders want to know. Like, why did you come back without Jesus? That's what we sent you to there to do. The officers answered, quote, no one ever spoke like this man. That's their answer. John seven forty six. I start here with a discussion of, of the words of Jesus as we begin our study of John eight twelve through thirty. Because this passage is a passage about the words and the witness of Jesus. 
It's asking us to consider how do we respond to the words and the witness of Jesus? Or maybe more carefully, how do we respond to the word? And because this passage, it it, it draws on the language of witness and testimony and judging and law. In other words, this passage draws on courtroom language. I want to frame our sermon in similar courtroom language. So, let's describe our first point this way. Calling the witness to the stand. The first witness is Jesus. Across these chapters, the witness of Jesus has resulted in this cluster of of language that emerges around the Exodus, the the story in the Old Testament of, of God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, rescue from their slavery to Pharaoh. And over these chapters, Jesus, as he's speaking, he keeps drawing in very particular, concrete language allusions to the exodus, freedom, redemption. So back in chapter 6, you might recall the conversation about bread from heaven. Jesus says, quote, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, John 6, 35. In the exodus story, God provided for the people he loved by, by putting bread on the ground they called manna. He fed them with this manna. And then in John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000, actually more than that, people, bread that just keeps them bread and bread and bread, more and bread, more bread, and they have this conversation about the bread. So Jesus, our witness, he, he testified, I'm like that bread, only better. Then we come to John 7. And it's this feast of tabernacles. Or this Feast of Booths. Like when Daryl was preaching the passage, he he really said it's it's more a celebration of camping. (laughs) And the way that God protected them is they camped in in the wilderness in tents, tabernacles, booths. And near the end of that week-long festival of camping, camping, there's this prominent ceremony involving water. It happens in the temple grounds. And this, this ceremony of water reflects back to the way that God provided water for the people when they were in the wilderness. He provided water for the people he loves. So these people, they're thinking about water just as they were thinking about bread. And then in John 7, we read on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Thus, our witness has testified, I'm the water you need, only better. Now in John 8, it would seem that this same, just looking at the context, it would seem that this same festival of camping is still going on or it's recently wrapped up. And in the same way, water features very prominently in that Exodus story and in the celebration, that week-long celebration of camping, so also as water featured prominently, so also does light. When God leads his people out of Egypt, there's this giant pillar of fire by night and a smoking cloud by day and where it goes they go 
They never walk in darkness. And to celebrate that, the Feast of Booths, again the Feast of Camping, has this prominent celebration of light. I'd like to read to you a section from what is called the Mishnah. It, it, it's this collection of Jewish oral traditions. And within the Mishnah, there's, there's various books. It's, it's this huge thing. And there's this whole book about this festival. And the writing dates to probably the second century, so century after Jesus, but we think it reflects back with quite a bit of accuracy to what it would have been like in the time of Jesus. And on the temple grounds, this passage from the Mishnah, um, it describes the younger priests climbing these ladders 15 feet high in the air, and they're lighting these huge lights, essentially giant tiki torches. There's like each one, I had to do some conversion, but it seems like there's 16 gallons of oil in these huge things. And here, quote, the young priests would light the candelabra, and the light from the candelabra was so bright that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated from the light. The pious and the men of action would dance before the people who attended the celebration with flaming torches that they would juggle in their hands and they would say before them passages of song and praise to God. And the Levites would play on lyres and harps and cymbals and trumpets and countless other musical instruments. Close quote. Mishnah. And the name of the book is Sukkah, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. You can Google that and read the exact same thing. Remember, this, this is the context of John 7 and 8. And it's into this context that we read John 8, 12. Quote, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. For us, it, it would be like after the hugest of firework displays, a display so bright and so spectacular, it feels like daytime. And after the grand finale, Jesus, our witness, says, I'm the light that you need, only better. How should we respond to such testimony? Clearly, such intentional and provocative imagery demands a response. You, you can't be a Jewish teacher, take all the greatest hits of the Old Testament salvation, bring it forward to the present day, apply it to yourself and say, I'm like that only better, and not expect a dramatic response. No one spoke like this then, and no one speaks like this now. Shall we worship him? Shall we stone him? How did the religious leaders respond to this testimony? I titled the second point, Objections, Your Honor. They don't like what he has to say. It's no surprise for those who have been tracking through John's book. So, they go back and forth with three objections. I'm going to frame it like this. An objection about bias, an objection about paternity, meaning fatherhood, an objection about origins. We won't dive super deep into these objections, but let me give you just the thumbnail sketch of each. First they say, 
Objection, objection, bias, your honor. He can't testify about himself. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing about yourself, bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. By true, I think they mostly mean valid. Which is why if you're holding NIV, New International Version, I think translates it, your testimony is not valid. I don't think they think Jesus is true, but their objection here is more about validity. His word about himself doesn't count for much. In other words, objection, you can't say so yourself. It's like me saying, I think community church is a pretty great church. Well, (laughs) that could be true, but it would be more valid if that testimony was supported by others. Coming only from me, a testimony about our church would seem like biased propaganda. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to go back to John 5, 31, John 5, 31, Jesus himself, he, Jesus himself even says to the religious leaders, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus is even admitting, he, like he said as much, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, it's not valid. So Jesus even said it. This is why they jump up and shout, objection, your honor, bias. Now I'm not sure what a judge in a courtroom would say, but here's what I'll say. This is a weird response. This is weird. Or maybe I should say it's a telling response. We might say, your heart is on your sleeve. After an all-night dance party (laughs) with glow sticks on the church grounds, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And they say, Technically, you can't say that about yourself. That's weird. It seems like they're evading truth. It seems like they don't want to deal with the testimony of Jesus. That's not a good place to be, church. It's very, very dangerous to hear truth upon truth upon truth and not be willing to surrender to that truth. That's a very dangerous place to be. That's the precarious ground that these religious men are treading. Let me illustrate. Imagine a world-renowned cancer doctor giving a press conference, okay? And at this point in this doctor's career, this famous doctor, he's moved mostly from practicing medicine in hospitals to research. He's in classrooms, labs, libraries, And in this press conference, he says, I never do hospital visits. Later, one of the journalists who's at the press conference gets cancer. The very cancer this doctor specializes in, treating. The journalist goes to a hospital. Famous doctor finds out which hospital 
And just as the journalist hears devastating news from the medical staff, in walks the doctor. This doctor. The doctor says, listen, this is bad. But there's a cure. But you have to trust me. And the journalist shouts in this raspy voice, you said you never come to hospitals. But here you are. You're a liar. And then the sick man looks around the medical staff and says, look at this doctor. He's a liar. Don't listen to a word he says. That's weird, right? Very weird. Jesus could say, you're crazy. (laughs) But he patiently goes with their objection. To paraphrase, Jesus says, okay, your law needs another witness for my testimony to be valid. I call God, my Father, to testify with me. My miracles have been testifying with me, but I'm calling God the Father to witness with me. If you knew him, you'd know me. I only do what he does, and we judge together. They didn't like that. (laughs) Objection, your honor. There's some dispute about his fatherhood. He claims to be divine, but we know his father is Joseph, and we can't go ask him. And by the way, there's a little scandal regarding his birth, but it's not polite to talk about that here in the courtroom. It's going to come up again in verse 41 and other places. See, see, Jesus goes with that objection for a little bit too. For the sake of time, I'm going to leave that alone. And also because paternity comes up later in the passage, Then we hear, objection, your honor. We don't know where he came from. I'll read that part again. Look at verse 21 through 24. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, You are from below, I'm from above, you are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. And unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. They object, and Jesus essentially says, As long as we're talking about origins, know that I'm from above and you are from below, we're not the same. This issue of your origins and your sin is very serious, but that's why I came to the hospital. I went out of my way because I want to see you. Indeed, unless you treat me, you will die. This brings me to my last point, our last point. We've heard from our witness that he's the bread of life, that he's living water, that he's the light of the world, that whatever rescue happened in the exodus There is a new and better exodus here now. And we've heard the objections to this testimony. Now we come to the reading of the verdict. I've already read some of the verdict, but let me read that part again and then add a little bit more. So we're going to read verse 21, then 24, 25, 26. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin." Where I'm going, you cannot come. 
I told you that you would die in your sins for, this is verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I find this reversal interesting. You see it? The religious leaders assume the role of prosecutor. They got a problem with the person and the testimony of Jesus. They have many problems, actually. So they assume they prosecute him. They put Jesus on the stand as though Jesus were the one being judged by them. And Jesus reverses this. Actually, my father and I are judging you, he says. We don't judge in the same way on fleshly, superficial judgments. We judge together based on truth. And what is that verdict? It's devastating. You will die in your sin, he says. That is the worst verdict you could ever hear. Feel that now. Feel the sober warning of that. Like it, it, it's coming at them and they just, they just, ah. it's not what it's there for. We're in a time, a moment, a season, when church is often fashioned in such a way as to be warm to outsiders. And not always wrongly so. I, I hope it is. Warm to outsiders. I think the real Jesus is warm to outsiders. And, and even in our church, we, we've got drums. We've got a guitar. Our music's generally upbeat. I wear jeans to church, sometimes even when I preach. And, and, and it can make it hard to hear this verdict from Jesus about dying in our sins. We can feel like this message belongs in a sermon to church people in the 1950s. Like, sure, that message about the seriousness of sin, it worked in Billy Graham crusades, back when society was earnest and concerned about God and morality and the big eternal questions. Now, preaching about people dying in their sins needs to be recast into something more manageable. Really, the thinking goes, we should be talking more about this phrase, walk in the light and not in darkness, and taking that phrase and applying it down into practical ways that we should walk in the light. And we should walk in the light as a husband or a wife in the workplace, in our singleness. We should be learning how to walk in the light, how to make decisions about college and retirement and and all sorts of decisions. Really, a good sermon on this passage should give us practical lessons about following Jesus throughout our life. Well, I like practical ways of applying Christianity to my life. I like that. I'd like to be a good husband. I'd like to follow Christ in my workplace. Yet this morning, our passage 
compels us to wrestle with this big question. When you die, will you die in your sin? I'll say it with different words to explain the meaning. When you die, will the consequences of your sin follow you into the next life, your forever life? For these men, the answer was yes. Many of them at least. The doctor had arrived, ready to treat the patient, and they refused treatment. They had their objections for not following. There are always objections, but are they good ones? Here's where this passage gets good, though. Jesus loved them. Like, yes, he's from above, and we are from below. Yes, he's the light of the world, and we walk in darkness. Ephesians chapter 2. But again, he's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. Like, he came to the world to be the light. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting sins. If you believe in Jesus, you will never die in your sins. If you trust in Jesus, the consequences of your sins will not follow you into the next life, your forever life. I'll put it like this. Put the good news like this. Christian, The worst thing that could ever happen to you, indeed, that you deserve to happen to you, will never happen to you if you're in Jesus. You, if you believe in Christ, you will never die in your sins because Jesus died in your sins. Verse 28, Jesus speaks of quote, being lifted up. It's something of a play on words. John, in his gospel, three times speaks of Jesus being lifted up. Chapter 3, chapter 12, here in chapter 8. To be lifted up in the first century, it was shorthand for crucifixion. To be lifted up, Jesus means that part for sure. But John, this, this author of this book, as you spend time sitting with his book and, and, and looking at his wording, he, he loves to play on words. He loves words to have one meaning and then a deeper meaning. And not only will Jesus be lifted up, but he will be exalted to the heavens through his death, yes, but through his resurrection and his ascension. And the biggest blessing Jesus offers you is by taking from you what you could never fix and giving you what you could never earn. After the Exodus story, way back in the Old Testament, God led the people he loved by light all the way to the promised land. And Jesus is saying, even so, the light of Christ will lead us there too. If we believe in him. Note the ending of the passage, John 8, 30, he says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. I just hope and pray this morning that we believe and we believe again and we keep believing till that great day he calls us home. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, would you do the very thing that the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 10? That you would cause faith to come 
by hearing. Just like in this passage, that there's no miracles. There's just words. There's testimony. And yet, people heard the testimony. They began to believe. And I just pray that for us this morning. That we would leave the happiest of all people. Because we know that the greatest and most wonderful thing is true for us in Jesus. In his name we pray.